It must have been one of the more startling moments in John's life and certainly a moment that he would never forget. John is in the wilderness and he is calling for people to make a break from their old way of living. He is calling for them to repent because the king and the kingdom is about to arrive. And we are reading that people are coming to him from Jerusalem and from Judea. They are coming from the surrounding regions and they are confessing their sins. They are being baptized. And you can imagine as John is in that river and one person comes and they're confessing their sins and he baptizes that one and he comes up out of the water and leaves and baptizes the next one who comes and the next one who comes and the next one who comes. And we're told something that is that is absolutely amazing because what John has been preaching is that there is one who comes after me who is greater than me. There is one who's coming after me that I'm not even worthy to carry their sandals. There's one coming after me who's going to baptize with the Holy Spirit. There is one coming after me in which all of history and all of the scriptures have pointed to. And in the midst of having these people coming to John one by one, confessing their sins and and then being baptized by John, one of the individuals is Jesus. Jesus then walks up to John. And what a moment that must have been as everything probably would have stopped in John's mind as Jesus stands there. And you'll notice in Matthew chapter 3 and in verse 17, verse 13, we're told, or verse 14, John would have prevented him saying, I need to be baptized by you and do you come to me? Here's imagine as each one's coming and they confess their sins, he baptizes them, up they go. And then Jesus walks up and he goes, <laughs> wait. <laughs> No, 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 no. This isn't right. (laughs) I'm not going to baptize you. I need to be baptized by you. You're the one. You're the one who's greater. You're the one that I'm talking about. You're the one that I'm proclaiming about the king and the kingdom. You're the one who's going to put all this to right. You're the one that I'm pointing toward. And it is interesting that you could see John as that moment would just be like, We're stopping everything here for a minute and a whole discussion going on as John is saying, no, Jesus, uh, I need to be baptized by you. And Jesus answer to John in verse 15 is we need to do this because it's fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. This needs to be done. And with Jesus' answer, you see in verse 15, it says that John consented. In verse 16, it reads that Jesus was baptized. Immediately he went up from the water and behold, the heavens were opened to him. And he saw the spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, this is is my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased. It's probably a paragraph that is confusing. 
You wonder, why is Jesus being baptized? And the answer doesn't even seem to help us all that much. Well, it's to fulfill all righteousness. And you read that and you go, well, okay, uh, that's great. But it worked for John. But what are we talking about? Why is this here? And why is this so important? I want to begin by considering that when in the Gospel of Matthew, you have him repeatedly talking about the necessity to fulfill. We've observed in chapters 1 and 2 that you have the Gospel of Matthew talking about the fulfillment of prophecies. When you see Matthew say, we're going to fulfill something... Well, we are fulfilling things that have been prophesied in the past. We are bringing to fruition the things that God had promised earlier. And that is something that needs to be in our mind for a moment here is when Jesus now comes to John and John is saying, no, no, this is completely backward and I need to be baptized by you. And the simple response is, We are fulfilling all righteousness. That's what we're doing right here. This is the fulfillment of of all righteousness. Sometimes when we think about righteousness, uh, we can think about that typically in a moral sense. You go like, well, righteousness means, okay. And, And that's why I think this can kind of be confusing to us. It's like fulfilling all righteousness. Well, what is exactly the moral rightness about what's going on right now? Jesus is sinless. He doesn't need to be baptized. So I'm completely confused. How is this fulfilling all righteousness? But I want you to think about righteousness in a different way. It's another way that is used frequently in the scriptures. And that is the idea of an establishing of justice or an establishing of order, an establishing of right ways. The prophet's often talked like that is that when the Christ comes, there's going to be the establishment of righteousness, that he's going to establish his ways, his order, his procedures. For example, like in Isaiah 9 and in verse 6, a passage that you may know well, for to us a child is born, to us a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. And on the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth. And forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. You notice the idea is that here's this promise of that when the Christ comes, he's going to have the government on his shoulders. He is going to rule and he is going to rule with justice and righteousness and establishing of right ways. And what we are seeing in this moment with the baptism of Jesus should be an image of almost the anointing of the king is happening here. That this is the start of his kingship. This is the start of his rule. The start of him putting the world back to right. The start of him fulfilling the very plan of God. You'll notice if you think about where Matthew goes next, 
is immediately into the ministry, is immediately next we're going to have the temptations and he's going to call disciples and he's going to go preaching. This is the moment to kick off that kingship, to kick off his rule, to kick off the start of putting things back to right and putting the world into justice and righteousness. And that is the idea of what Jesus is saying to John is we need to do this to fulfill all righteousness is this is the moment that the scriptures, the prophecies have been pointing to is the arrival of the king. He has come and this is going to signify that event. And that's why you read in the next couple of verses what happens to really be the visible proof of this. You'll notice what happens in verse 16. As Jesus is baptized, immediately he went up from the water and behold, the heavens were opened to him and he saw the spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. And you read thinking, now why does all of this happen at the baptism? And I submit to you that this is the visible proof of what we just were noting, that this is the anointing of the king, the start of his kingship. This is him beginning to put his order into the world. And that's what's now being uh, shown to us with these images. The first one that we see here is as he comes up from the waters, the heavens are opened. And I just imagine that scene as here is John and he's taking an individual and he baptizes that one, takes the next one, they confess their sins, baptize that one. And then there's this whole discussion with Jesus. Jesus is saying, yes, you need to do this, fulfill all rights. John like, no, no. And Jesus, okay, we're going to do this. And as soon as Jesus comes up out of the water, just to imagine the sky is just opening up. Of all the people that have been coming to John, nothing like this has happened before. It's just a person baptized next, a person, okay, they're confessing next. And then with this one, it just stops everything. The heavens are opening up. And as the heavens are opening up, we're told here that we have the Holy Spirit here, seeing the Spirit descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. You might read that, okay, well, what is that doing? That is, certainly seems unusual. And again, another showstopper moment for everybody to pay attention to what is happening at this moment with Jesus. You might remember that this conjures up a couple of things that you see in the scriptures. It's not the only time you see the spirit hovering. It re- recalls the very beginning where you have in Genesis 1-2, where the whole world is dark and formless and void. And you have this strange statement in verse 2 that says, and the spirit was hovering over the face of the deep. And you go, well, what's, what's, what's going on with that? Except the very next line is, and then God says, let there be light. And that hovering is signifying that this is the beginning of new life. And a new creation. That's what the spirit is tied to. The spirit represents life. And as the spirit in Genesis 1 is now hovering over the waters. Hovering over this void and darkness. And now suddenly light and life and creation are exploding into the universe. A similar imagery is, is happening here. Is that at this moment there is the visible proof. 
signifying that new life and new creation are about to come through this king. It might also connect it if you thought of a spirit hovering like a dove. You might have even thought of Genesis 8 where you have Noah sending the dove out. Well, well, why are we having a dove sent out? Well, again, same idea. What's the dove looking for? Life and creation, same idea. We're trying to observe that. Are we going to have this new start and new life and new creation after the, the floodwaters of judgment? And so it is with Jesus is that at this moment now we are signifying that light is now breaking into the world. And through this one, it's going to be new life. It's going to be new creation. Here is the king who is going to accomplish all that God has promised, he is going to fulfill all righteousness and he will establish God's ways and establish God's rule. And so that's one of the reasons for that first picture. The, the spirit descending is keying into the proof that this one who has just come out of the waters is the king, is the anointed one. Who will bring in the new life and the new rule. Same thing follows with what happens next. Not only does it tell us in verse 16. That the spirit of God descends like a dove. And comes to rest on him. But as the sky is opened up. We're told in verse 17. That there are words from heaven that are spoken. Now think about this for a minute. Of all the things. That God could say at this moment, when Jesus comes up out of the waters and the spirit comes down and the skies are opened up and John is there, whoever else is there on the banks of the Jordan who had come to be baptized by John. Of all the things that God could have said in this moment, a very simple sentence. This is my beloved son. In whom I'm well pleased. Why those words? Why are these the words that are the proof that Jesus is the king who has arrived, who is bringing life and justice and righteousness and creation? Why is that the case? But these words also are to bring us back to Old Testament prophecy. They're to bring us back to fulfilling all righteousness. What has God said about what Jesus is going to do? And what is that supposed to look like now with the king arriving, anointing, and ready to begin his work? I'm going to take you to just two passages of myriads that you could probably look at that refer to the arrival of Christ and what he's going to do. But listen to Isaiah 42 as the first place to consider. Isaiah 42 in verse One, behold my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen, in whom my soul delights. That's an amazing statement of it. So here is God saying, here is one that my soul delights in. That's what's being said at the baptism. This is my son that I'm well pleased in. I delight in this one. There's no flaw in this one. I can have all of my joy and delight. I am pleased by this one. Well, here's Isaiah prophesying about this servant in whom God can say that. Here is the one whom I uphold, my chosen, in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. Sound like the baptism again. And he will bring forth justice to the nations. 
He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not grow faint or be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth and the coastlands wait for his law. Notice the imagery again of righteousness and justice that's coming as he arrives and what he is going to do as he brings that together with his rule and his kingdom. Same thing in Psalm 2 and verse 1. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves up and the rulers take their counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. And he who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. And then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury saying, as for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Here is here. This is my beloved son. And here is the, the picture of Christ hearing from the father. Here's what he told me. You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron, dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. I want you to see in these declarations of this is my son or this is the one I am well pleased, that this is my chosen one, that all of those are images of a king arriving and being the anointed and establishing his rule and accomplishing his purposes. Now, just real quick of what we're going to talk about this morning then for our our, our few minutes that we have. One of the things that I think is so important about this picture that we can just easily blow by because it's such a short, okay, John's there, here comes Jesus. Jesus, Jesus says, you got to baptize me. John says, no, Jesus convinces him. He's baptized, sky opened up, you know, spirit comes down. Okay, voice and okay, chapter four. There's a lot going on in this scene and the imagery is to convey to us in the baptism of Jesus that we have this appointment and anointing that this is the one the world has been waiting for. This is the one who can fulfill all righteousness. This is the one who is bringing new hope and new life and new creation. Now, as you think about that idea, I think it is interesting to think about the idea of kingship. I've subtitled this series for the first four chapters, The Arrival of the King. And if you've noted when we were setting out what we were going to do this year in Matthew, you will note that every section in Matthew is something of the king. It was all about trying to see Jesus in Gospels Matthew as the promised prophesied king and what that means for our lives. But what is interesting to think about is we live in a time and we live in a culture, we live in a world that do not like royalty and do not like kings. In just about every way, we have tried to overthrow every semblance of kings and monarchies 
and rural and any of them that still remotely exist pretty much do it in a figurehead kind of way because we're very much against all of that. (laughs) And I want you to think about why is that the case? Why has all of that been diminished? Why have we thrown all that away? Well, I think one of the reasons why that we've rejected royalty, rejected kingships is because in in a lot of way, kings are drains on the people. (laughs) You know, you think about royalty and all of that. Well, they don't act in justice and they don't act in righteousness and they don't act on behalf of the people. They act in their own self-interest. They do what's good for them. And over time, various countries and nations have just kind of had it and said, you know what, we don't need you to impose your will over us. We don't think you're doing a very good job. You drain our resources, but don't rule in righteousness. You don't do the thing that you were supposed to do. Instead of ruling for the people, they are ruthless and act to their own self-will and their own selfish interests and their own desires. That's what makes the kingship of Jesus so unique and fascinating. I'm going to draw you back to the passages that I just just quoted for you in Isaiah 42 and in Psalm 2. In Isaiah 42, as you have the picture there, Behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delights. I put my spirit upon him, and he will bring forth justice to the nations. But then listen to what's said about him. He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. I thought about that line. It's probably another way of saying he's not going to make a big deal about himself. <laughs> what do kings usually do? Uh, you know, hey, look at me. King is here. Everybody needs to stop. Isn't it amazing that here we're going to have the arrival of Jesus And he is going to go to places like Nazareth and Capernaum, and he's going to be in Galilee. He'll be in Jerusalem and Judea. He'll cross over the other side of the Jordan River. He'll go all kinds of places. And everywhere he went, he made sure there was a big old band of people leading the way, blowing trumpets, you know, waving palm fronds and saying, Behold King Jesus, everybody bow down and get ready for him. He didn't do that. He didn't act like other kings. He didn't act like the way royalty acted. And then notice the next line. A bruised reed he will not break. And a faintly burning wick he will not quench. What do people in power typically do to those who you would say metaphorically are bruised reeds? Worthless, get out of the way. Faintly burning wick. I'll just quench that. Assert my power, assert my rule, assert my dominance. And here is this image of when this king comes, his goal is not going to be about himself and making sure you see him in pomp and circumstance and glory in every town that he walks in and anyone who doesn't bow down as he walks into the city, he just kind of looks at him and they die on the ground and that would show that he's the king. You know, he'll just kind of just give him a look and cross his eyes or snap his fingers and everyone who ever rejects him, they just are laying there dead. No, uh, a bruised reed he won't break. 
There is an image that in the baptism of Jesus, you are learning that he is coming to bring hope to people who are bruised. To people who their lives could be pictured as this wick that just barely has a flame left on it. And it looks like it's about to go out any second. And he's coming to bring new life to that. Rather than taking the flame out, he's come to fan the flame. Rather than seeing the bruised reed and finishing it, he's going to restore it. This is the beauty of the king who's coming for us. This is the imagery of this baptism of Jesus, is that his purpose is to give new hope to the bruised reed, that he came to make your life what it's supposed to be and to make it better by setting you free from sin and its slavery. He didn't come to destroy you, but he came to help you. It is difficult to see how many people look at Jesus and look at his authority And look at what he calls for his people to do. And they look at that and they see it as these demands of trying to destroy. And he's a king like no other whose purposes are always for our good. That the whole reason he came in establishing his rule and comes as king is to deal with sin and to deal with enemies so that there could be hope given to us. That we could be a new creation, that we could have new life. That's the whole goal of what he wants. His goal is not to destroy, but to be the very thing that you need in your life. And we just live in a culture right now that looks at that and goes, no, he, he's the thing that is keeping me from life and keeping me from joy. And he's making my life hard. And if we could just cast that off and we could get away from that, we could be truly free and happy and enjoy real life. And, and here is God trying to wake us up and say, no, you don't see this king. I know that's the way human kings are, but not him. That this moment, as he comes up out of the waters and the father says to him, this is my son in whom I delight. This is my beloved son. This is the one who who is I am well pleased in. He is going to accomplish what we really need in our lives. And to bring it to the other side of the coin from Psalm 1 or Psalm 2 in the first nine verses. Remember what it said there about his appointment. You have the nations and peoples doing the very thing that you see what our world wants to do today. Let us break off these chains. You know, these chains of God and all of these, these, these terrible bonds that we have. Let's just break them off so that we can be free. And you have the psalmist then describing what's going to happen to those who look at the king in that light. And I pulled a couple of lines from that section. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury. And he will break them with a rod of iron. The reason that John, excuse me, the reason that Matthew wants to show us the, the baptism of Jesus here and why this short little paragraph is so significant 
is because at this moment you are having the declaration of Jesus as king. This is the appointing. This is the anointing. This is the moment that all righteousness has been waiting for, that all scripture has been pointing to. And now you have the one who is going to make things back to the, the right that they are supposed to be and establish that order. And there's only two simple options that come from this. Number one is Isaiah 42 can happen for us. We serve the king who has served us and given us his life. There's option one. He came and the whole reason he came is to restore your life. His rules and his laws and his teachings are not burdensome, but life-giving. And we can serve that king and see what he says as the very thing that will give us life It will change who we are. It will transform us and set us in the direction we need to go, not only here, but also for the age to come, or resist him. And he says what happens when you resist is there's going to be a judgment for resisting. That's the whole idea of kingship. But the point that I think is so useful to see here is he's not a king worth resisting. We live in such a time where we are just like, authority, I resist it. (laughs) How dare you tell me I can't do something? If I want to drive 150 miles an hour backward down the freeway, that's my right. No, it's not. But we're just anti-authority. You can't tell me anything. And I think we see historically there are some regimes that it was right to resist and go, they're terrible. (laughs) But not this king. Not this one. You aren't supposed to look at him and go, these rules are dumb. I don't get it. Now, what God's trying to get us to see is that this is our final opportunity for repentance before judgment comes. His arrival is all about putting things back to right, putting your life back to right, to come and heal the bruised reed, to fan the flame of the faintly burning wick. The whole reason he came is to put that life back into you so that you don't have to have judgment or wrath. You know, you think about God in that way. You know, God could have just said, here's my laws, do them. And we all would go, okay, we all failed. Okay, well, wrath to you all. It it should be amazing that we have a king who looks at all of us as bruised reeds and says, I can still fix that. Even though they're broken, I can still fix them. Even though their flame may be barely burning, I can still solve that. I can still heal them. I can still give them life. I can still give them exactly what they need. And everything that is about to happen for the rest of the gospel account is built off this moment. That as Jesus comes up out of the waters, this is the turning moment for the world where now life can be given 
where hope can be achieved, where transformation can truly be had, and you can be a new creation in him. Serve the king who served you and enjoy life. Or continue to resist the king and there will be judgment. Let's go to God in prayer. Heavenly Father, it sometimes seems that we just have a nature within us to resist everything about you. Lord, we want to go our own way and we want to live our own lives and we want to do what we think is best and we want to disregard what you've told us so that we can do what we think would be comfortable and pleasing to us. And God, first I pray that you would forgive us for the times when we've done that. Forgive us for how we resist you. Forgive us for how we disregard your laws how we take for granted what you've accomplished through your son. Forgive us for how we fail to see that we are servants in your kingdom and that we are to yield to your son as king. God, I pray that you would change our minds and change our way of thinking so that we would see that every word that you said to us is for our good. There is nothing that you have ever done for us that is ever against us, but only for our salvation and for our eternal souls. And so, Lord, I pray that we would always have that vision of you, that we would see you as a loving father who has compassion upon each one of us. And Lord, I pray that as we look to your son as our king, that we would serve him in the way that you want us to. Lord, help us to put away the sins of our lives. Help us to overcome the temptations that come to us every day. Help us to live in a way that shows how grateful we are that we serve your son as a king who has come to heal us and help us. Lord, I pray that we would receive the help from your son and that we would allow the teachings and the direction and guidance of your son to heal our lives so that we could be the people that you want us to be here as we try to shine as lights and live as your people, but also to be transformed in such a way so that we could give you glory. And Lord, that we look forward to eternity with you when all of our brokenness and all of our hurts and all of our pains will be healed where there'll be no more tears and that we can just enjoy complete relationship with you. Help us to live our lives toward that goal and to see the glory of your son as our king and our savior. In Jesus' name, amen. We're going to sing an invitation song and we are inviting you to come to the king and to see the beautiful picture of what he's come to do for your life, to change your life. Not to destroy you, but to give you the very thing you're looking for. Can we help you in any way do that today? To turn away from your sins, confess Jesus to be the Son of God, be immersed in water for the forgiveness of your sins, to walk faithfully with him. He wants to get you on the right path. He wants to change the way you're going so that you can enjoy eternity with him and certainly a better life in this world. Can you uh, come to him this very morning? Let us know while we stand and while we sing.